Welcome to the Dr. Bub's Performance Podcast, giving you the latest evidence-based research and cutting-edge insights for elite mental and physical performance. He's connecting you directly with the world's leading experts and coaches. Here's your host, Dr. Bubs. Hey everyone, welcome to the Dr. Bubs Performance Podcast, evidence-informed, practical-based. This is season two, episode number 21, and today I sit down with Mr. Greg Knuckles, a former world record-holding powerlifter with a special research interest in strength development. In this episode, Greg will discuss the history and theory of periodization, as well as where theory meets practice in the application of this concept. Greg talks concurrent training, the interference effect, and factors to consider for strength in team sport athletes. He'll also discuss the importance of a needs analysis in athletes to truly find the most impactful areas of training, as well as overcoming training roadblocks for powerlifters, their nutritional tendencies, and much, much more. Terrific insights here from Greg. You can link to the research papers discussed in this episode at drbubs.com forward slash podcast. If you're interested in more on periodization and exercise selection for hypertrophy, then please head back to season one, episode number 24 with Dr. Brad Schoenfeld. And if you're interested in strength development from a bodyweight training perspective, then don't miss season two, episode number 13 with Dr. Stephen Lowe. Okay, before we get started, a quick word from this episode's sponsor, Totem Sport. Totem Sport is the world's only 100% natural supplement, no sugar, no artificial flavors, absolutely nothing added. What is it? Totem Sport is the world's purest deep ocean mineral water. Collected from natural algae blooms in the Atlantic Ocean, Totem Sport is the only sports drink supplement that contains all 78 naturally occurring minerals and trace elements. The research on deep ocean mineral water is ramping up, a recent study highlighting its major promise as the optimal rehydrating strategy over spring water and other sports drinks. Totem Sport is the evolution of hydration, the world's only 100% natural sport drink, tested and approved by Informed Sport and Informed Choice. Check out totemsport.co.uk and defy the norm. All right, let's get things rolling. Season two, episode number 21. Enjoy. My guest today is Greg Knuckles. Greg has over a decade of experience under the bar, a Bachelor of Science in Exercise and Sports Science, and is working on a Master's in Exercise Physiology. Greg's also held three all-time world records in powerlifting in the 240 and 242, 220 and 242 classes, and his passions are making complex information more easily understandable for athletes, coaches, and fitness enthusiasts. Greg, thanks so much for taking the time. Yeah, thanks for having me. Terrific. Well, listen, can we kick things off maybe with uh, telling listeners a little bit more about your background and how you got into powerlifting and research? Uh, sure. So uh, as far as powerlifting goes, um, kind of got into the sport by mistake, but it ended up being like a very serendipitous mistake. Um, essentially, I just got got too injured to play real sports anymore. Um, nice. Between uh, torn MCL, uh really, really gruesome ankle injury, um, some other random stuff and, uh, don't have a, a labrum in my right shoulder anymore from pitching too much. Uh, and the thing that, that finally did me in, um, were some, some pretty gnarly concussion issues with football. Um, to the point where the doctor said, if you have another one that bad, uh, you might either die or wind up in a permanent vegetative state. And I was like, eh, I'm pretty, wow. pretty partial to, to staying alive and lucid. Um, so, so what sport can I do to, you know, keep my competitive drive going with, uh, with, with minimal risk of head impact, uh, and powerlifting works there because if you have a head impact in powerlifting, you did something very wrong. Definitely. Um, and it ended up working out. Um, cause it turns out I'm a lot better at lifting weights than playing sports. <laughs> uh, Fantastic. I, I was, I, I was a good athlete, but never like, you know, very, very top level. Um, but powerlifting has, has worked out pretty well for me. Um, so the guy who was coaching me, like training me to help me get in better shape for basketball, um, his background was powerlifting and weightlifting, Travis Mash. Um, and so when I got those concussions, he was like, eh, it's not the worst thing that could have happened to you. You're a lot better at lifting weights anyways. Uh, why don't you try powerlifting? And I was like, okay, sounds fun. Um, so I did my first meet and broke all of the national records for my age and weight category after training for the sport for about two weeks. 
and said, okay, wow. I'm, pretty good. I'm pretty good at this. Uh, I mean, part of that is just the fact that I was 14 and not that many 14-year-olds are competing in powerlifting. Um, so not necessarily taking records over super intense competition, but whatever. It is what it is. I'll take it. Absolutely. Well, Beauty, let's jump right in then and talk uh, periodization. Can you give listeners maybe a quick summary of the history and the theory of periodization? Sure. So the person that most people trace periodization back to would be uh, Metvayev, uh, a, a Russian coach and sports scientist. Um, it probably predates Metvayev to some degree, um, starting in, in East Germany, uh, which was also under Soviet control and then kind of spread to Russia and the rest of the Soviet Union from there. And it's, it's classical underpinnings are in the idea of Celier's adaptation syndrome, um, idea that uh, you expose an organism to some sort of stressor. Um, initially, that's going to weaken it, and then it's going to increase in resiliency. And then if you keep exposing it to the same stressor, uh, eventually everything goes downhill and conditioning deteriorates. And in the case of the actual studies themselves, mostly done on mice uh, and mostly conducted by giving them drugs of, uh, of various concentrations, like poisons of various concentrations, um, eventually they die. Uh, <laughs> and so that's kind of the original theoretical underpinning of periodization and kind of where it all started. And um, periodization is, is essentially the idea that the training modalities you use and the training stressors that you expose an athlete to need to be um, varied at um, along several different time scales in order to cause maximal adaptations and prevent burnout, essentially. Um, and so anyway, all of that sounds pretty good in theory until um, – so – one of the reasons that it got so popular kind of worldwide and especially here in America is we have this idea that like periodization was this like secret Soviet super training uh, technique type thing. Uh, the Soviets did good in the Olympics, often winning more medals than the Americans did. Uh, therefore, it must be their super secret advanced training ideas that are allowing them to do that. Therefore, periodization must be the best thing ever. Um, that's seems logical, that's kind right? Of, uh, it, it is until you actually go back and look at the data. For sure. Um, so, for one, to chalk it all up to training disregards a few other factors. So, one is that Russia, um, well, the Soviet, all all of the Soviet countries in general had very very good. Um, athlete identification and development programs, like on the national level. Um, you compare that to the U.S. where, you know, if you're uh, if you're built really well for swimming, but by God, you love basketball, you're going to be a basketball player. And if you decide to take up swimming, it'll probably be too late in life to actually have enough time to develop into as good of a swimmer as you could have been. Um, you know, and we just like we let athletes kind of choose the direction they want to go here in the U.S. Um, and people do, for the most part, kind of like to play to, to their strengths. So it's not a terrible system. Uh, but when compared to the system they had in the USSR, which was essentially having people go through the schools, identify kids with promise as early as like six, seven years old, and then like put them in nationalized training facilities to make sure that they could develop, um, you know, over 15, 20 years until they hit their competitive peak. Um, we just didn't do probably as good of a job getting as much out of our collective talent as they did. Um, so that's, that's one factor completely independent of training. Um, and another one that can be overlooked is, uh, the nationalized drug program they had. And Absolutely. Here's the, well, like when I say that a lot of people will counter and say like, well, everyone was using drugs back then. And like they totally were um, like if you uh, WADA wasn't it, it, memory serves and it may not. Uh, but if I'm off with these years, I'm not off by much. I want to say that 
uh, drugs weren't actually um, disallowed in the Olympics until I want to say either 86 or 88. Um, and then for, for a while they would have like in contest testing, but no like body to organize year round testing. And then what we think of as like modern drug testing didn't start until like well after the Berlin wall fell. Um, I want to say, I want to say it was the 2000 Olympics may have been the 2002 winter Olympics. Uh, I think WADA was established in like 99, 2000, 2001, uh, somewhere along in there. Yep. So like, yeah, like they, they, for a lot of that time, people could just use drugs and it was fine. And then for a while, like, you know, people could use drugs cause they were technically against the rules, but they weren't really testing for them, uh, or at least testing well for them. Um, so yeah, I mean like probably kind of every country or every competitive country during that era was using, but it's generally agreed that the Russians had, uh, kind of the best and most aggressive doping program. Um, so yeah, when, when people look at the Russians' uh, Olympic success and chalk it all up to their superior training methods, uh, it overlooks at least two other very, very big important factors that also contributed to their success in that period. And also, they didn't um, implement periodization on like a nationalized level until, if memory serves, the 1960 Olympics. Um, and if you go and look at their medal counts in the preceding two Olympics and then in the proceeding to Olympics after, uh, they started implementing these things. Uh, it didn't actually improve their metal hall all that much. Um, like just kind of pre post, like they won a ton of medals before they kept winning a ton of medals after you don't really see a big uptick that you would expect to see if it was improved training methods, really, really driving their success. Gotcha. Um, so that's, that's kind of one issue with the, the lore behind periodization. And the other is that kind of the theoretical underpinning of the general adaptation syndrome, it makes a lot of sense unless you have actually read the papers it's based on. Um, and, you know, it's, I, I think it's a, a decent conceptual model um, for understanding how the body responds to stress. But if you look at the papers that, general adaptation syndrome is actually based on. It's not like let's train some mice or ideally let's train some humans and see how they can adapt and thrive and become better athletes. They're much more like, you know, let's uh, stress mice until we eventually kill them and see what the uh, process of their demise looked like. <laughs> um, Absolutely. So, so more, more of a heuristic than anything else. Yeah. Yeah. So, you know, it's, th that's a pretty big extrapolation to actual like training for sports. Um, and I definitely don't think it's kind of justified to use that, uh, as, as anything even remotely approaching a physiological underpinning. Um, so yeah, that's kind of, it's kind of, uh, a negative, uh, take on the background and history of periodization. <laughs> for sure. Um, and today at the moment, yeah. in terms of the research, you know, if, if we stick to this discussion, even around powerlifting, where does the theory meet the practice? Yeah. So that's, that's a good question. So after, uh, after kind of teeing myself up, am I allowed to swear on this podcast? You should go for it. Sure. Okay. So after kind of teeing myself up and, and shitting on periodization for about the last 10 minutes, um, there is, there is quite a bit of research looking at, uh, periodized versus non-periodized training for, uh, strength development. And, if you look at that body of research as a whole, um, it does pretty convincingly indicate that periodized training um, does lead to faster strength gains than non-periodized training. Um, however, I have some issues with the methodology used. Um, so in the vast majority of those studies, what you'll basically see is two programs. Uh, the non-periodized group, um, non-periodized basically means that none of your major training variables, volume, intensity, et cetera, uh, are changing over the course of the program. And periodized means that at least one of those variables and generally both of them are, ch are changing over the course of the program. Uh, generally what you'll see is the non-periodized group is doing something like uh, three to four sets of 10 reps or three to four sets of failure at 
uh, 75-ish percent of one rep max for 12 weeks or something like that. Um, and the periodized group is generally starting a little bit lighter than that. So 60, 65% for three or four weeks, uh, 70, 75% for three or four weeks, and then like 85-ish percent for three or four weeks. Um, so over the course of the entire training program, uh, total volume is the same. Average uh, intensity percent of one rep max is the same. Um, but if you look at like if you look at it through the lens of training specificity, um, you would expect that the group that is allowed to train with heavier loads would gain more strength. Um, so then when you look at that research, you're seeing larger gains with periodized training. But you kind of have to ask yourself, like, what's actually driving this? Uh, is it due to periodization itself or is it just simply due to the fact that the periodized groups are allowed to train heavier than the non-periodized groups are? Um, and I think a lot of it is down to specificity. Um, and so, you know, there were like 30 or 40 years of studies that were basically conducted like that. Um, and then just recently, like late last year, uh, there was a paper that personally I feel gave uh, the fairest direct comparison between periodized and non-periodized training. So in that paper, um, the periodized group would train with sets of, eh. and if I'm getting some of these details wrong, they're, they're at least close enough. No worries. Um, we can link to the paper as well in the show notes. No okay. problem, Greg. Okay. So the periodized group was doing like sets of 15 one week, sets of 10 or eight or something the next week. And then sets of like three to five the week after that. Um, and then repeating that twice. And the non-periodized group was essentially doing all of that within a single session. So uh, the periodized group, they were doing, say, week one would be six sets of 15 to 20 reps. Week two would be uh, six sets of eight to 10 reps. Week three would be six sets of three to five reps. The non-periodized group um, each week would be two sets of 10 to 15 reps, two week, or two sets of eight to 10 reps, two, two sets of three to five reps. So um, not only matching average volume and average intensity, but also allowing the non-periodized group to train with three to five reps the same way as the periodized group did. Yep. Um, also peak intensity, which I think is very important from a specificity perspective. Uh, and it found no differences in strength gains between the two groups. Um, so yeah, I think at this point, um, the best argument that could be made in favor of periodization is that um, is really mo more one of pragmatism than scientific superiority, if that makes sense. Um, and by that, I mean, like, if you kind of step beyond the lab and just think about how it is to train in the gym. Uh, if you're in a high volume training block and you're, you know, trying to build some muscle, uh, on your frame to then support larger strength gains later on, uh, you know, you're, you're probably not going to want to do a whole and also lift pretty close to your max in the same session. Uh, or at least most people don't like to do that, even though that's kind of what the whole like West side system is based on and they've been pretty successful. Um, so yeah, it's, it's a, you can use some of the periodization principles to just kind of practically set up a training program that you will like to do and that kind of makes sense and feels good to you. Um, but from, from kind of a scientific perspective, as long as you're matching peak intensity uh, with periodized and non-periodized training, I don't think that periodized training is strictly better. Um, I, I honestly think the biggest benefit from it is just it helps people stop from being bored, um, which which honestly isn't that is a non negligible benefit. Um, non periodized training basically means you're doing the same stuff every time you go to the gym week in and week out. Um, and some people love that. Uh, you know, they like to have written down in their notebook what they did last time, try to do that exact same workout, but beat it in some way. Um, other people myself included, if you told me that's what my training was going to look like, I'd shoot myself because that, <laughs> that sounds so monotonous and boring. Um, so yeah, that's, that's kind of, kind of where I stand on it right now. Yeah. I mean, it's, it's fascinating stuff and amazing to see where 
you know, all the new research is, is shedding some, some more light in these areas. And, you know, if, if we take a firm example, perhaps, of, you know, someone who's periodizing a plan as, a, say, a power lifter compared to someone who's playing a team sport, like maybe a football player or a rugby player, can you talk about some of the, the differences or maybe the factors that you might consider them when you're building those plans out? Yeah, yeah, for sure. So um, to this point, I've, I've mainly just been talking about stuff um, purely from the perspective of strength development, which is kind of my bias because that's that's kind of the world that I live in. I do think it probably has more utility for um, team sport athletes. So, so basically, powerlifting is a weird sport in that it's incredibly simple. Um, you need to be able to squat a lot, bench a lot, and deadlift a lot. Um, and, you know, some pretty good exercises for, or a, a pretty good way to get jacked and build muscle in kind of the places that are going to contribute to squat, bench, and deadlift, or to squat, bench, and deadlift with a lot of volume, relatively heavy. And lo and behold, that's also a really good way to get, to just get stronger and build strength in those lifts. For sure. um, so that doesn't really necessitate that complicated of training. Um, Compared to, you know, let's say soccer or as most of the world would say football or football as we Americans know it or rugby or basketball or anything else, um, you, you need to be strong enough. You need to have enough muscle on your on your frame uh, to be a little bit more resilient to injuries. You need to be in good aerobic shape. You need to be in good anaerobic shape and you need to be able to produce a lot of power. Um and a lot of those things are kind of contradictory. So you're doing a ton of aerobic training, probably not going to be able to build all that much muscle and especially not going to be able to develop power that well. Um, so then it does become a little more challenging to organize all of those uh, characteristics you need to develop without having them uh, interfere with each other and without just, you know, basically allowing your total training volume across all of those modalities to just get so high, it, it wears you into the ground. Um, so yeah, I, I think periodization, kind of the typical uh, traditional periodization approach of working on conditioning in, in like the deep off season, adding in some more just like general strength and hypertrophy, like base building work uh, later in the off season. And then as you get closer to competition time, kind of cutting back on some of your conditioning work, cutting back on some of your general strength work and working more on power and more so like general sp or like specific sports skills that are going to transfer the most directly to your actual competition. Uh, I do definitely think there's some utility in that um, just because you have so many more balls you have to juggle um, that you probably probably could train everything together all the time but that probably wouldn't be the smartest way to set it up. For sure, yeah. I mean, I guess the team sport athletes obviously need to practice their sport a great deal as well, especially more of the skill sports like you know basketball or soccer. Um, so if we circle back to sort of concurrent training, can you maybe... Yeah, so uh, concurrent training, which is basically training, um, like doing resistance training and conditioning work within the same program at the same time, um, first, I mean, people have been doing it since the dawn of time, but the first time it was studied was by Hickson in 1980. Um, and since then there's, there's been a lot of work in that area and, um, basically how the, how the ratio of strength training to conditioning work should look for you, um, is primarily dependent on what you need for your sport and where you're at now. Um, some, some kind of general recommendations, are actually just the biggest general recommendation would be, um, if at all possible, if you can separate your conditioning sessions from your lifting sessions by at least six hours and ideally 24 hours, um, that will do the most for um, eliminating what's called the interference effect. Uh, the interference effect is the, is the uh, very well-supported idea that if you do um, – like lifting and conditioning work in the same program, you will still gain strength and still gain muscle, but you'll gain less strength and less muscle than you would have if you would have only been lifting. Um, so being able to separate those sessions by at least six hours and ideally 24 hours will give you the most bang for your buck as far as avoiding the interference effect goes. Um, 
And then, oh, and to note, the interference effect doesn't work in the other direction. So strength training either, depending what study you look at, either has no effect on endurance training or like endurance performance or actually improves it um, because, well, for a few reasons. Um, but one of the biggest ones is it improves movement economy. Um, it increases muscle stiffness, which sounds like a bad thing, but stiffness and flexibility aren't necessarily the same thing. Um, stiffness is how much force it takes to cause deformation in a muscle. Um, so you increase stiffness and then like, say when you're running every, um, like every stride, your muscles will store a little bit more elastic energy that you can use to then propel yourself in the next step, um, to rely a little bit less on active contraction and that, um, decreases the total energy cost of running. Um, massively so yeah. important in the longer events for sure. Yeah. Yeah. Super important. Um, so yeah, interference effect kind of only works with only works in one direction. Um, endurance training tends to decrease strength training outcomes, but not the other way around. Um, but yeah, so. And in terms of one of the most common ones, Greg, just to jump in here quickly, you know, obviously American football players, rugby players, um, you know, obviously the bigger positions as well, there's sort of a fear of doing any kind of cardio in terms of that interference effect. So, you know, at what point, um, you know, is, is there benefits for, for those athletes to be getting in that base aerobic training? And at what point would you think there'd start to be those diminishing uh, interference effect? Well, okay. So to kind of circle back to where I started here, um, the amount of conditioning work and strength work that an athlete does, um, really needs to be based on where they are and what their just natural physical proclivities are and what the needs of their sport are. Um, so for example, let's say, let's say you have a lineman in football who, you know, maybe they're playing guard now, but they used to play tight end in college. Uh, they were in good shape then, and they, you know, had to bulk up to be an interior lineman. Um, but they're just kind of naturally someone who's in decent aerobic shape. Um, there, there is a very large genetic component to just kind of naturally how strong or how aerobically fit someone is. So, you know, let's say this person is naturally pretty aerobically fit. Um, you know, they're resting 20, 30 seconds between plays anyways, because it's football. Um, and they're not really having to move that much on every play. They might not need to do any conditioning work at all or very, very little, um, compared to, you know, let's say a, a slot receiver who's going to be running a pretty decent distance and making a lot of little nifty cuts on every route they run. Uh, and let's say that they're kind of the prototypical explosive athlete, uh, high, high amounts of type two fibers and kind of consequently not naturally in really, really good aerobic shape, but their conditioning needs are a lot higher because they're having to move so much on every play. Um, that person, because they're just kind of naturally more explosive, might not have to do quite as much strength training in the off season. They'll probably still benefit from it because um, it's good in general and will also help with injury prevention. But it's probably it may not actually improve their performance on the field all that much. Uh, but they probably will benefit from doing more aerobic training or anaerobic kind of sprint conditioning work. Um, so a lot of that really, really does just depend on the needs of the athlete. Uh, there, there is just a finite amount of total training that someone can do. And so your job, uh, as a coach is kind of to figure out what that ratio is for each of your athletes, like guys that need more conditioning work, have them do more conditioning work, guys that don't need as much conditioning work, try to minimize it so they can get larger adaptations from their strength training. Yeah. It's amazing how that needs analysis and just nailing down what is actually holding the athlete back is, is, uh, really comes down to that rather than, um, just a lot of trainers still kind of focusing on trying to get somebody stronger, more powerful at all costs. Right. Yeah, man. I, I feel like, I feel like a lot of strength and conditioning coaches have forgot that the second, the second half of that is and conditioning. Uh, <laughs> and I, I don't know. I, I feel like that pendulum is kind of swinging back towards the middle. Hopefully. Um, I see a lot more really bright coaches now talking more about, uh, conditioning work and optimizing conditioning work for their athletes, uh, where, where it really did seem like for five or 10 years, just everyone was, was all about everyone just needs to lift weights and get stronger. And that's, and that's that. Um, so yeah, I 
think people are, are realizing more so again, the value of conditioning work, uh, or at least I hope so. And if we, uh, tie that back into powerlifting in terms of, um, you know, some type of aerobic work for powerlifters, is that going to benefit them in terms of, you know, potentially in terms of recovery and things like that? Yeah. Yeah. It depends. Um, so the thing I'd say about that is if you feel like your conditioning is limiting your ability to do as much work as you need to in the gym, you're probably right. Um, and it becomes more important the stronger you get just because the, um, like the energy demands of essentially anything scale with work, with work rate, uh, kind of work defined in the physics sense. Um, and so if your range of motion is the same and you're doing the same number of reps, but you have twice as much weight on the bar, you're burning twice as much energy in the same period of time. Your work rate is, is twice as high. Um, so if you, you know, if you look in the gym and you see someone fairly untrained banging out a set of 10 squats and they put everything they had into it, maybe they're working with 185 pounds, you know, they might be breathing hard after the set, but like 30 seconds later, they're fine. Um, you see someone do that same set of 10 squats, but with 600 pounds and like, I don't care who you are, like, you're going to be fucked after that. For sure. <laughs> like, so, uh, I, I don't I don't think for kind of a new lifter conditioning work is really all that important um, just because it's it's generally not going to limit their ability to get in enough work in the gym or recover uh, between sets and between sessions. Um, but I do think it, it starts playing a progressively larger role um, the stronger you get just simply because the energetic demands of your training and the energetic demands of uh, recovering between sets and between sessions um, kind of increases linearly as you get stronger. And for, you know, lifters who are, you know, hitting a plateau, let's say power lifters, you know, they're, they're not making any progress, but they generally feel pretty good. What are some things for them to maybe consider in terms of their, um, training plan? I mean, if they still feel pretty good, they probably just need to train harder in general. Um, increase training volume, increase frequency, something like that. Uh, like I, I wouldn't, I wouldn't worry too much about conditioning unless, uh, unless you're just kind of starting to really feel worn down by the midpoint of your sessions or like between sessions, like that's telling me you're probably not recovering well enough. But if you're, you know, if you're at a plateau, but you still just generally feel pretty good, you're not wiped out at the end of your workouts, you're recovering well between sessions, like you're probably just not training hard enough. And if we flip that then for those clients that maybe are, you know, feeling, starting to feel tired, starting to get some diffuse soreness or, you know, lack of a pump during the training or enthusiasm during the training, what, what are some of the uh, potential um, strategies there? Uh, well, first thing is look to see if they're taking care of business outside the gym. Um, you know, is your diet in check? Are you eating enough protein? Uh, are you eating enough just period as, as people start overreaching a lot of times their, their appetites start going. Um, are you doing a decent job managing stress and kind of, are there things in your life that are causing you stress that are outside your control? So, you know, for example, if, uh, if, if someone say just has a really stressful job and that stressful job is never going away, that's a different situation than like, you know, you have a, you, you make poor life choices and manage your time poorly. So work piles up like that's, that's a fixable stressor versus you have a shitty job and there's nothing you can do about it. That's kind of not fixable. Um, so kind of look to, and the other really, really big one is sleep. Um, most of the time I find that like, I, I feel like strength athletes don't quite appreciate um, how much easier <laughs> our sport is than most other sports. Like if you just look at the total stress imposed on the body, um, training for a powerlifting meet versus like training for a marathon, it's, it's not even in the same ballpark. Um, but I find that a lot of powerlifters who are getting really worn down when they're ramping up their training volume, uh, are either eating like garbage, just not eating enough protein, uh, or just aren't sleeping nearly enough. Um, I, I have some theories as to why that is. 
But I mean, us powerlifters as a bunch tend to be um, like just stimulant junkies and uh, novelty seekers in general who make bad choices and don't sleep a lot. <laughs> um, that's that's kind of what I've just noticed overall. It's funny, uh, and, it's and funny we, you mentioned that. I had um, Dr. Ian Dunican on a few uh, few weeks ago, and he's uh, sleep expert from Australia and he'd done some research in rugby players and you mentioned sort of team sport being so intense. And of course uh, he, in his study around sleep, they're investigating the effects of caffeine and they realized that the players weren't even aware of how much, you know, caffeine they were using in terms of the powdered form pre-game. So some guys were just taking these massive doses. So definitely the uh, dopamine junkies is, uh, should tick that box. Yeah. Um, so yeah, if, if someone's feeling worn down, kind of the first thing I ask about is sleep. Um, just because I find that one, if people aren't sleeping enough, improving their sleep, improving their quality of sleep, that pays the biggest dividends. Uh, next thing I'll ask about is nutrition. Um, specifically, are they eating enough protein and do they feel like they have an appetite? Um, and then kind of past that, more just like generalized stress and what things are fixable kind of versus what things aren't fixable. And if they're checking all of those boxes, like they're sleeping eight, nine hours a night, they're not drinking a bunch of caffeine late in the day. So, and they have good sleep hygiene in general. So you would kind of assume they're sleeping pretty well. Um, Their diet's good. They're eating plenty of protein and they're not reporting high levels of stress, either objective uh, kind of number of stressors or kind of subjective how stressed they feel. If all of those things are in line, then it's time to look at their training. Um, maybe they're just going way overboard, but they're lifting or kind of maybe they're at a plateau where they're just in garbage aerobic shape and they just can't handle the training volume because um, they just can't kind of recover from a bioenergetic perspective between sets or they can't shift to a strong enough parasympathetic state after their workout um, to be in a good state to recover. So um, I've, I've run into people in that situation before, but in the vast majority of cases, in the vast majority of cases, like 80% of them, it's just a matter of sleep. Like guys aren't sleeping enough or they're not taking steps to make sure they're sleeping well. Um, and then some people who are just kind of, volume obsessed and their training is just excessive. I'd say that's probably another 10, 15% of people. Um, and then kind of all of the other ones like diet is bad. Like, yeah, I find that as far as strength athletes go, that doesn't tend to be too big of an issue. Like we like our protein. If anything, we, we might eat too much of it. Um, stress in terms of like stress that people can, control. I find that that doesn't apply to too many people. Um, a lot of people are stressed out of their minds just because they have a really stressful job or they just had a newborn or something like that. Uh, but you can't really address that. Um, and then I'd say maybe like 5% of people there's, um, there's an issue other than that, such as poor conditioning, holding them back. Like there, that definitely applies to some people, but it's, I found like a minority case. And in terms of uh, monitoring with with athletes, is there anything that you use, and you know, besides just symptoms and talking to the athlete, whether it's you know subjective questionnaires or RPEs or any 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 tech that might uh, give you some insights there? Um, talking to them and like a monthly uh, POMS questionnaire, profile profile of mood states questionnaire. Um, but for the most part, just talking to the athlete. Um, some of the more some of the more like quasi objective assessments like HRV, I used to put stock in and don't too much anymore. Um, just because I, I found that it's signal to noise ratio isn't all that great. Yeah. It's amazing with all the different bells and whistles and toys that uh, getting back to the human approach of just uh, talking to the athlete and, and getting their feedback is such as, you know, still the, the number one um, place to go. Um, Circling back, Greg, to, to on the nutrition front, you know, I recently read a paper in Collegiate Powerlifters showing that uh, you know energy intake and carbohydrate intake were kind of insufficient amongst the group. There is that something that that you might see as well in terms of if people are struggling of just not getting enough fuel in or not enough carbohydrate in to support the training. 
do you remember? Do you remember in that paper what they used to assess nutritional intake? I'm not sure if it was just a questionnaire. Or... I don't know, man. I I'm honestly pretty skeptical of a lot of. Um, I'm skeptical of a lot of studies that assess food intake. I think that if you have a big enough population and you have well enough trained practitioners to – that's honestly the biggest thing um, as far as like assessing nutritional intake goes. Because like as far as prospective stuff goes, so keeping a food log, um, people can do that pretty well as long as you put in enough work on the front end as a researcher to make sure they actually know what they're doing. Um, and kind of like food recall stuff. Again, that can be pretty decent if the practitioner is like has done enough of them and they know what probing questions to ask. And um, for sure, like, like you know, because some something as simple as like I ate a salad. Well, how big was the salad? What kind of dressing did you put on it? Did it have croutons on it? Did it have bacon bits on it? Like if, if the athlete in a food journal just puts salad and you're flipping through it and you don't pick up on that and it has insufficient like an insufficient amount of information, that salad they could have been anywhere from 150 to 1,200 calories. You know Especially what I mean? Especially if you're getting it from McDonald's. I think their dressing's about 800 calories. So there you go. Yeah, yeah. Um, so yeah, I, I wouldn't be able to speak to that study specifically unless I knew how good the people collecting that, that data were at collecting that data. Gotcha. Um, so uh, it, it wouldn't surprise me to learn that powerlifters don't eat enough carbs. Uh, again, we're <laughs> powerlifters in general tend to uh, essentially be carnivores that sometimes eat vegetables. Nice. <laughs> nice. So a lot of protein, a lot of fat, generally eat some carbs around training, but you know, our, our macronutrient split isn't going to look like a marathon runners by any means. Um, so it wouldn't surprise me to learn that powerlifters probably don't eat as many carbs as they should and may eat more fat than they should just kind of displacing carbs and fat. Um, but I, I would be pretty surprised to learn that the average powerlifter is eating insufficient calories. Um, I find that more often than not, the the issue people kind of find themselves with is uh, like, you know, I need to compete at 83 kilos in three months and somehow I crept up to four kilos over the class limit. Um, For sure. Crisis mode. Yeah, that's what I see happening a lot more often than athletes not eating enough. And on the supplementation front, I uh, recently had your colleague, Dr. Eric Helms, on talking hypertrophy and supplementation. Um, you know, for, for power lifters, or maybe you, know, you can comment whether it's just somebody starting out or obviously somebody at the elite end, uh, are there places people can look for, for those smaller gains? Uh, I mean, the only one I'd really recommend without reservation is creatine. Um, just plain old creatine monohydrate, mix it with water, five grams a day, take it, forget about it. Uh, that's, that's probably the thing that's going to help the most on the supplementation front. Um, past that, there's some data on citrulline malate. I'm sure, I'm sure Eric talked about that as well. Um, where there's like kind of five studies showing that citrulline malate can increase work capacity and two kind of showing it doesn't do much of anything. Um, one supplement that I think has kind of like situational usage would be, uh, HMB. I don't think it's going to do much for trained lifters the vast majority of the time. Um, but if you have to take time out of the gym or if you like dramatically increase your training volume for some reason, um, HMB, which helps limit muscle damage to some degree and increase rate of recovery, um, generally hasn't been shown to do much in trained athletes, but I could see it being beneficial in those circumstances where kind of the amount of stress you're exposing yourself to is ramping up a lot. Again, like coming back, uh, from training after a layoff or an injury or just ramping up training volume, maybe, um, if you've been taking it easy for a couple weeks after a meet and now you're going to really ramp things up for off season training. 
There was one interesting paper on gelatin supplementation um, increasing collagen synthesis pretty substantially. Um, I wouldn't necessarily recommend that yet because uh, I would just want to see a longitudinal study on it to see if that actually um, leads to increases in soft tissue accretion and um, improved performance. But uh, I think that's an interesting one to keep an to keep an eye on. Nothing else is immediate. A lot of the other popular ones. Um, so say for example, beta alanine, um, really, really good for improving performance that lasts between like one and five minutes. Um, but most of the time we aren't going to be doing sets that push an entire minute. So I don't, uh, other, other than just maybe like the placebo effect of getting face tingles and be like, yes, (laughs) a little paresthesia always helps, right? Yeah. Uh, I don't, I don't really know that that's going to do all that much for, for most lifters. Awesome. Well, listen, Greg, terrific insights here. Uh, I want to respect your time. So last couple questions for you before we wrap up. Um, in terms of the research and strength training obviously really exploded in the last decade. What do you think the evolution of the strength training research is going to look like in five or 10 years? Can I give a really pessimistic answer? <laughs> sure. So when I go back and read older stuff, I really think that strength training research peaked in like the mid nineties. Um, like a lot of those papers I'm seeing like big sample sizes, um, taking a lot of like pretty solid measures, uh, and just really well-conducted research. Like occasionally you'll come across one where knowing what we know now, um, they probably would have made some different design choices, but you know, that's kind of unavoidable. Um, just because, you have blind spots before you learn things and a field accumulates knowledge. Um, but man, a lot of stuff I see in the field now, uh, seeing like shrinking sample sizes, um, like, I don't know, like just seeing the effects of publish and perish a lot more, um, or publish or perish where, experiments just don't seem as big as well thought out, uh, seem a lot cheaper. Like if there's a gold standard measure that could be used or a cheaper alternative, see a lot of older papers kind of going with the better measurement and a lot of newer ones going with the cheaper, easier, faster measurement. Mm -hmm. Um, and I think that's, a. I think that's, largely just a a matter of there being more researchers in the field, but the total amount of grant money available to do research, not increasing at the same rate. Um, and so I think there will be a lot more research going forward, but, uh, I mean, if, if the trend I've seen continues, it'll be of worse quality, uh, which, which probably isn't a, a very optimistic way of looking at things. Um, man, the thing that drives me crazy that I see all the time is, uh, someone does an underpowered study, which is fine. It is what it is. If you can't afford to do a big study, you have to do a small study. It's going to be underpowered. I get that. Um, but then instead of just kind of like taking the L and saying, we didn't find anything significant, hopefully more people will do either bigger studies in this field or just kind of similar type studies as this. And we can meta analyze it one day. Um, They'll use like small differences in like within group effect sizes to say like, well, this wasn't actually significant, but we're going to treat it as if it was. And like if you look at other fields that are actually like attempting to cope with the reproducibility crisis, like if you tried to pull that crap in a psychology journal today, they would like laugh you out of the room because they're um, – like th- they as a field are trying to grapple with the fact that uh, they realized a few years ago a lot of their results were underpowered and non-replicable. And that's a very dangerous statistical approach to kind of um, squeeze sure. false positives out of something that's not even a false positive. Um, and I I don't know. And, and again, I, I feel like that's not people being intentionally misleading with their results. I feel like that's just... Uh, an outcome of publish or perish because if you can't frame something as if it's an important difference between whatever you're testing and a control condition, 
uh, journals just aren't going to be interested in it. Um, and so, yeah, I, I feel like, I just feel like a lot of junk is getting published and this could be like rosy retrospection, but I feel like a greater percentage of what's getting published now is junk than was true in the past. Uh, interesting, really interesting stuff. Um, and just shifting gears here, Greg, on a personal note then, um, I think arguably I've saved the most important question here for the, the last question of the day. Um, apparently you like beer, I like beer. Have you got any favorites? Are you an IPA guy, stouts, porters? I've met very few beers I didn't like. I, I feel like a lot of people who say they're into beer, they what they actually mean is they're beer snobs. Um, <laughs> like I, I feel like to like beer means that you like beer, and there are ones you like more or less um, but you just like beer in general. And I definitely just like beer in general. My favorites are probably Belgian quads. Um, like if I can get my hands on a West Flater in 12, I'm happier than a pig and shit. Um, but kind of my go-tos due to cost and availability would be, uh, St. Bernardus ABT 12 and Rochford 10. Um, and then on the IPA front, I've really been getting into like hazy New England style IPAs recently. I haven't met one of them that I haven't really liked yet. Um, so that's that's kind of where my beer tastes are at right now. How about you? Awesome. I was going to say, great great way to get your polyphenols in as well, you know, so there you go. It's, uh, <laughs> and apparently the German uh, bobsleigh team is using non-alkalized beer for as a way to rehydrate during the uh, last Winter Olympics. So there's a lot of different uh, strategies there as well, right? That's awesome. Good for them. That's, that's also incredibly German, and I love that. <laughs> It is very much so. Uh, awesome, Greg. Well, listen, I appreciate you taking the time today. You know, where can people stay connected with you and keep up with all your fantastic research? Strongerbyscience.com is my website. Um, if you want to check out my research review, that's strongerbyscience.com slash mass. Uh, that's monthly applications in strength sport, uh, monthly research review I put out along with Eric Helms and Mike Zordos. And then past that, just in terms of getting in touch with me, I'm most active on social media on Facebook. Um, and occasionally post stuff on Instagram, but that's mostly just pictures of my dog because he's a lot cuter than I am. <laughs> Fantastic. I'll definitely include uh, links to the papers that we talked about in the show, as well as those links in the notes at drpubs.com forward slash podcast. Uh, thanks again for everyone else tuning in. If you have any questions for Greg or want to leave a comment on today's episode, we'd love to hear from you. You can reach out on Facebook, Instagram, or Twitter at drpubs. Of course, if you enjoy the show, please take a minute, subscribe on iTunes, and share with friends. Thanks again, and see you guys all next week. The Dr. Bub's Performance Podcast endeavors to provide accurate and helpful information to listeners. These podcasts cannot take into account individual circumstances and are not intended to be a substitute for health and medical advice from a qualified health professional. You should always seek the advice of a qualified health professional before acting on any of the information provided by any of the Dr. Bub's Performance Podcasts.